0: Thanks, David. Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Good to see you on this three-day weekend. Happy Labor Day. Um, these three-day weekends in Phoenix are always interesting. I, I, I do this every time. I call you guys the congregation of people that do not have a home up north. So, otherwise, you would probably be there. So, we're glad that you're here. And I also know that... Uh, on weekends like this, we end up with a lot of guests who are visiting family and stuff. So if this is your first time here, uh, we are uh, glad you're here. You're here at Redemption Church Arcadia. And just so that you know, Redemption Church is one one church with eight different congregations. And uh, you're at the Arcadia Flavor this morning. And if you want to know a little bit more about us, you can go to our website, redemptionaz.com. Uh, we call ourselves Gospel-Centered and Outward focused and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And so that's what we really uh, focus on especially during the time of uh, the the message which is now the proclamation of god's Word and the proclamation of, of uh, the gospel and my name is Frank if you're new here and you don 't know who I am uh, i'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, we've been working our way through the book of Romans for the last year and a half, and we're in Romans twelve now and uh, uh, during this uh, paragraph that David just read verses 9 through uh, 13 we've really slowed down here Um, some of you are like well it's taking a year and a half to get here in the first place you've been going slow but we're really going slow now we're going literally verse by verse one verse every uh, Sunday for this particular paragraph and so our our main verse this morning is verse 12 but I want to take you back like I have each week and say that it starts with Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 where Paul makes a uh, considerable shift in what he's writing about. Uh, uh, Chapters 1 through 11 were all the doctrine and theology and the gospel and and everything was laid out for us, the sovereignty and the grace of God. But then at the beginning of 12, he he, uh, has this very clear shift where he says now, In view of all of that, this is how you're supposed to live. And so for the rest of the book of Romans, the last five chapters, that's what it is. It's the application of what we know of our new identity in Christ. And he starts by saying this, and this is his thesis statement for the last five chapters. He says, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, uh, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in view of everything I've told you about because of his grace for you, You are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Because this is now true of you in Christ, you are to live in this particular way. And if ever there was an all of life is all for Jesus verse, it would be verse 1 of chapter 12. Your entire life is to be lived for Jesus. Your entire life, everything you do is actually an act of worship. You're going to be worshiping something with your life. And the idea is that it would be Christ. That's because of what he's done for you. And then he doesn't stop there. He also says, uh, as a result of you now being in Christ, your mind is going to be changed. Your your mind is going to be renewed. There's going to be a metamorphosis in your mind. And so he says, no longer are you to conform to the patterns of this world. No longer are you to look for the world's systems and the world's values to fulfill you. It's not that you don't still live in the world, but you don't look to the world to fulfill you. But rather, by the, tra- uh, by the transformation of your renewed mind, you are now going to be able to live into what God has for you. You're going to be able to test and understand what God's will is for your life. And you're going to be able to live lives that are good and pure and acceptable to him. And that becomes the thesis statement for everything else in the book of Romans. And then verses 3 through 8 Paul is explaining that uh, by by sober judgment, we now understand how we're to to live in regard to uh, others and how we're to live in regard to the rest of the church and how we're to live in regard to the exercise of our spiritual gifts. And then he gets to verse 9. And we're spending, from 9 to 21, we're spending 7 or 8 weeks talking about genuine love. Because he says in verse 9, at this point, Because we are living sacrificial and because our minds have been renewed, he wants us to make sure that our love is genuine. And everything through the rest of 12 is all about how we live in genuine love, especially towards each other in the church, but also including toward those who are outside of the church as well. But it's especially for those of us in the church how we're to live in genuine love with each other. And the first thing he says about genuine love in verse 9 is that it's discerning. It's discriminating. Genuine love, first of all, abhors what is evil and clings fast, holds fast to what is good. And then from there, it just cascades and we have this, uh, this unpacking of what genuine love looks like all the way to the end of chapter 12 where he says genuine love does not try to overcome evil with evil, but rather it tries to overcome evil with good. It's a totally other-oriented way of living. It's, it's a way of living that first uh, comes by humility and humbleness. And and uh, if you want a picture of, in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees come to Jesus and as they always were. The Sadducees would come, the Pharisees would come, the lawyers would come, the scribes would come, and they're, and they're trying to trap Jesus or get him to say something he shouldn't. And one of them comes in, in Matthew chapter 22 and says, uh, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment of all? Which was a common question that people would ask rabbis back. This is not some new question, but they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say about it. And so Jesus said, okay, I'm happy to answer that. And he said, the greatest commandment of all is, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Said, this is the greatest one, but then the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And one person has said, if you want to know what that loving your neighbor as yourself looks like, if you want all the details of what that love looks like, go to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through, through 21, and you will see the details there. And so today we get to chap, uh, chapter 12, verse 12. And there are three commandments, or three imperatives three clauses in this one little verse, and so that's why it's going to take us 40 minutes to get through this, and they're all extraordinarily important. Because of this genuine love that we live by, and because we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as Christ followers, we're going to be able to rejoice in hope, we're going to be patient in tribulation, and we're going to be constant in prayer. And so the title of today's message is very simply this, Endure, Endure. And this idea of enduring, of, of remaining patient, of being, of being perseverant, of being steadfast is one of the most prominent themes in all of the Christian life, and we see it all over the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, but especially in the New Testament. And yet, I would submit to you that most of us, as Christ followers, really aren't that excited about this theme, this idea of being patient, of persevering, of persevering. Enduring. We're not that excited. I've been to many Christian conferences and retreats in my life, and it's always been interesting to me how you know you go to these things, and there's lots of Christian, uh, successful Christian conferences on. On uh, God's wonderful love for you and how wonderful you are. And, and here's how you're going to be a great leader. And here's how your ministry is going to be successful. And here's how you're going to use your gifts to success and achieve and all of this stuff. But we don't seem to have very many successful Christian conferences on suffering and enduring and patience and tribulation. They, they just aren't marketed that well. It's not something that we would, we would necessarily run to. And yet, it is one of the most important New Testament words. This whole idea of patience, perseverance, endurance, and, and steadfastness is summed up in this one Greek word, Hopamene. And it's used throughout the New Testament. And of the many times this issue and this word is discussed in Scripture, here in verse 12 is how Paul says we are to approach it. In genuine love and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to rejoice in hope, remain steadfast in the midst of our tribulation, and we are to constantly pray. And here's what we need to acknowledge. We have to acknowledge that these three things... Uh, Hope, tribulation, and prayer, these three things are are givens in the Christian life. This is not going to be a message that tries to explain to you how as a Christ follower you should be hoping and as a Christ follower you should expect tribulation and as a Christ follower you should be praying. We expect that you would know that that's probably true already. Instead what we want to tell you is that in the midst of this you should rejoice and you should endure and you should constantly pray. That's the big idea today. Rejoice, be, be willing to endure, and be patient, and be constantly in prayer. So let's dig in. That first clause is rejoicing in hope. The word hope is used 77 times in the New Testament. And of those 77 times, 49 of them are used by the Apostle Paul in his writings. So he uses it two-thirds, almost two-thirds of the time in, in the New Testament. And that's a lot. So he speaks of this a lot. And and let's acknowledge that when you and I as human beings talk about hope, generally speaking, the vast majority of the time that we use that that word hope is it's it's in the context of anxiety, worry, and wishful thinking. We use it in the context of anxiety, worry, and wishful thinking. We we hope that something will happen that we want to have happen, or we hope that something won't happen that we don't want to have happen. That's generally how we use it, and there's no assurance that what we hope for is going to come true. And that hope is always in the future, and we're not sure about it. Now, Paul uses this word 49 times, as I mentioned. The two most common ways that Paul uses this word are, number one, he says your hope is in Jesus, some form of him saying, like he does here in verse 12, that your hope is in Jesus. In other words, transcendent hope, eternal hope, assured hope of the finished work of Christ and the inheritance that you have in him. But there is a second way that he uses it fairly commonly and that's when he says in his letters, at the end of his letter, he'll say, I hope I get to come and see you soon. And so in that case, there's Paul actually using that very same word in the context of wishful thinking. I hope I get to come see you. I may not be able to. I don't know if I will be able to. I'm planning to come and see you and I hope I can come see you, but I don't know for sure if I'm going to be able to come. So those are two completely different ways that this word is used. And I want to make sure we're clear on this. There's nothing wrong with hoping in that wishful thinking way. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. It's part of the human condition. We shouldn't feel bad when we do it. All of us have preferences and desires and agendas and strategies that we want that aren't even necessarily sinful. They're just things that we want to have happen that would bring us pleasure or or joy or happiness or whatever, and, and I understand that, and we, we should embrace that, and so we hope. Here are a couple of, exa- of examples. I seriously, I seriously do, I'm not seriously in, in the sense that I'm worried about it, but seriously hope that this is the Cardinals year, that somehow they surprise everybody, and they're going to, and they win the Super Bowl this year. They go all the way, and they win. I hope it's their year. Now, I'm not hoping in a worried or anxious way. I'm not, this is not my life or anything, uh, my greatest hope is that there's a Super Bowl party somewhere with food. That's my biggest hope. But it would be just a bonus if the Cardinals were there, okay? But it's just it's just basic wishful thinking hope. I hope they're there. Now, another kind of wishful thinking hope that does carry some with it some anxiety or worry is, is my youngest daughter, Darby, who plays volleyball. And, and she's got a, a, a knee that's had some problems in the past. In fact, she's had one major surgery already three years ago on that knee. And so... I'm constantly hoping and praying that her knee doesn't blow out as she plays volleyball. And there's a little bit more stress and anxiety with that one. That's a little bit more important personally to me. And so we all hope that way. We all have those hopes. But there is a depth and a difference when it comes to the hope that we have in Jesus, this eternal transcendent hope. And that hope is supposed to result in us living lives of rejoicing, Living lives filled with joy, which leads to the question, well, why? Why would we rejoice? Well, Paul just outlines it for us throughout the New Testament. Uh, Already in in chapter 8, he says that we have hope. We live in hope with patience because of the inheritance that we share with Jesus. We're co-heirs with Christ. So we have that hope. He also says in chapter 8 that we have hope because we're eventually going to be glorified, just like Jesus has been. And, he says, we live in hope because the Holy Spirit has already filled us today with his presence, and we can live by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have this this transcendent, eternal, guaranteed, for sure hope that should cause us to live differently than people who don't have Christ. We should live in joy as a result of that. He talks about rejoicing in hope, obviously, here in chapter 12, but then in chapter 15 of Romans, he also tells us that we should live in hope because God has given us his scriptures. God has poured out his mind for us. We have the mind of God right here. If we want to know what God thinks, all we have to do is open those up, and that gives us hope as well. Uh, in, In his first letter that he writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, he says, And this is a rhetorical device that he uses here. But he says, listen, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, in other words, if the hope we have in Christ is only good for right now in this this world, then far beyond anybody else, we are the most to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us if our hope in Christ is only good for this, this world. And what he's saying in the negative is that's not so. It's actually the other way around. The reason we do have hope in Christ is because we have hope for eternity. We know we're going to heaven. We know we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. We know that the the new Jerusalem is a reality for us in our future and that we're going to gain the same inheritance that Christ has. And then in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he he says that our hope is only in Christ. And since that is our only true hope, we are able to live with boldness and confidence. And, And it's Not just the confidence to be able to go to the throne of grace with our petitions for God, but it's also the boldness and confidence to be able to go to the world and tell them about Jesus and tell them about the gospel, the good news of Christ. And his point is that our hope is not in us. That if your only hope is strictly in you, then it's going to be a faulty hope because eventually you're going to let yourself down and you're going to let others down. Your hope is in something bigger and greater than you. It's in Jesus. It is in Jesus. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, he tells us again that our hope is in the inheritance in Christ, and it's guaranteed. And finally, I'll throw a little Peter in here because I love this passage. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter gets in on the act, and he says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and that that rebirth that we now have gives us this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, uh, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Absolutely guaranteed. If you're in Christ today, you are assured of the kingdom of God to come as the saints who are already there, and they know you. And you should know that. Cute little movie, nice little movie, sentimental little movie recently. Um, Apparently, this is a bad illustration because nobody in the first service saw it, but it's called The Fault in Our Stars. I don't know if anybody saw it. I'm still going to give you the illustration, so bear with me. Okay, Uh, there was this... One little thread of there. I, I, I like to look for theology in pop culture artifacts like movies and television shows and stuff. I think it's fun. But there's this one little thread in there, and the idea was that our faint hope in this world is that maybe one person will remember us after we're gone. Do you understand what the gospel hope is? The gospel hope is that the entire kingdom of God doesn't only remember you, but knows you now and will know you forever. The hopes can't compare. This transcendent eternal hope that we have in Christ is massive. It's huge. You can't even even measure it, especially when compared to the hope that we have here. And so we live lives of joy. And then that leads to the second clause, which is to be patiently steadfast in tribulation. However, the challenge we have to remember that we have this hope and we rejoice, but the challenge, which now Paul is talking about, is the fact that we're still here living on earth, living in this world, and it's hard. It's hard to live in this world. And so we have to wait for this inheritance that's to come. And the waiting is filled with challenges. If you've been around church world for any length of time, maybe you've heard it described this way. It's the already but not yet of the gospel it's the already but not yet of the gospel yes we already have victory in Christ and that victory is absolutely secured the challenge is is that we're still here on earth battling the spiritual warfare as Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 and we are struggling in this battle here that doesn't feel like it's already won So, so we're not yet there, but there is already a victory. So, it's the tension of the already but not yet. And so, we have to bear up under this tribulation. We have to accept the fact that life is going to be filled with trouble and trials and challenges and suffering and those things. Again, Jesus says at the end of chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, in this world you will have trouble. He wasn't kidding. He wasn't kidding. And the Christian worldview is that we will have trouble and tribulation and that we're not to try to flee it or go around it or somehow rub the magic Jesus genie bottle and make the trouble go away, but rather we are to patiently endure the trouble by the power of the Holy Spirit and head straight into it and go right through it. And the reason God calls us to do that in several places is because that's where we learn. That's where we begin to see our faith in action. That's where we begin to see God work. That's where we begin to grow up as Christians and mature. That's where we get stronger. That's where our spiritual lives get more elastic. We're more flexible. That's where we see God do these magnificent things. There's no way that God can show you his power if you run from trouble every time. The only way he can show you his power is, is, is by you going through it with his power. Uh, One one friend of mine, Tom, he calls this spiritual aerobics. Many of you do aerobics, and you go because aerobics strengthens you and makes you more flexible physically. Well, this is the same kind of thing here. It's spiritual aerobics. You see, Christianity, the Christian faith, is not the reversal of the tribulation and suffering that we will uh, experience here, nor has Scripture ever said it was so. Scripture is honest with us about the trouble we're going to endure here. The trouble we're going to face here. And of course the challenge is, is twofold for us. We, first of all, we just flat out live in a culture that believes that it's, that it's uh, uh, somehow a, a, a civil right that we would never have to suffer or go through anything hard. And so there's people constantly looking for ways to give us this life where there's no inconvenience, there's no trouble, there's no suffering, there's no pain, there's, and nothing bad ever happens to anybody and even though that's, that's a ridiculous fantasy, people are still pursuing that. And then it's compounded by, occasionally, the pastor or the Bible teacher who comes along and starts teaching that that is what Scripture says, that, that the Christian faith will make all of your troubles go away. And that's just a lie. The Christian faith about, is not about your troubles going away, it's about giving you the power of Christ in the midst of those troubles because he has already overcome This world. That's what he says, Jesus says at the end of that verse in chapter 16. He says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, be encouraged, be filled with my spirit, because I have overcome this this world. And it is the faith that allows us to learn and grow in the midst of the trials. It's James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds. That's what scripture says. Scripture doesn't say, listen, These trials and tribulations are going to go away once you meet Jesus. But rather, James says, no, no, no. You are to rejoice when these trials and these tribulations in your life come. And and, and notice he says, when they come, not if they come. He's assuming that they are coming. But then he gives us the why we are to rejoice. He says, because in the midst of that, you're going to have your faith tested and as your faith is tested in the midst of that, you're going to see God work, and it's going to produce in you perseverance. And there's that same word again that we use in verse 12 of Romans 12. There it is in James chapter 1. It's the Greek word hupomene, which has been variously translated as patient, endure, persevere, and steadfast. It is a major New Testament theme that we are to remain steadfast in the midst of trials and tribulations and if we want perseverance and patience the one thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to learn it by going through things that require patience and perseverance i have never met anybody who doesn't want to be more patient and have more perseverance the problem is is that we want it without having to do anything for it and god comes along and says like contentment it's something that you're going to learn through life's experiences And my power working in your life. It's something that you learn. It's not a spiritual gift. It's something that you acquire as you test your faith in this life. Uh, Andrew Solomon in his book, uh, Far From the Tree, says this. Everyone wants to get better, but no one wants to change. That's true. Everybody wants patience and perseverance, but nobody wants to go through what it takes to acquire those things. And one of the interesting things about that word, uh, tribulation, in verse 12 of Romans 12, is that it literally means compression from all sides. That's what the word literally means, slipsis, compression from all sides. You, you ever notice that when, you, when, when life is hard, lots of challenges, lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of tribulation, lots of trials, it just feels like life is closing in on you from all angles and you're being compressed, and, and every little thing becomes magnified, and every little hurt becomes a bigger hurt, and every little trial and pressure becomes a, a bigger challenge in your life, and so we humans naturally default in our sinfulness. We, we default to other things that we think we can use to cope with these trials or that could overcome these trials, these, this compression in our life, and so we lean into things like wealth and power and and sex, and comfort, and success, and pleasure, and and those things. And we take things that are actually very good, nothing wrong with those things, but we elevate them to the status of functional savior in our life, or God, or an idol, and that's where things start going south. Those things, in and of themselves, are not bad, but when we elevate them to take God's place, that's when life really starts to go south. That's when you essentially become... For a lack of better illustration, you become Walter White. And I know some of you are like, I I don't sell meth. Yes. But that that, that show really wasn't about selling meth. Even Walter White's character said it. It was about success and power and money. He was using those things to try to fulfill him. And it's a beautiful picture of what happens when we elevate good things to God things and they become very bad things. There's a book that I mention at least every six months. You're probably sick of it by now, but I'm going to mention it again. We even have a picture of it. Um, it's an older book, 1999, but the, the things that Greg Easterbrook, the author, found out are even more true today than they were in 1999. He's done some follow-up research. The book is called The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And what Easterbrook does in the book is is it's really a literature review of all the research that proves conclusively that the United States is the most successful, the most wealthy, the most achieved nation and culture in the history of the world, and at the same time the people who live in the United States and are supposed to be enjoying all of this progress are the most miserable, most depressed, and the most medicated people in the history of the world. It is the progress paradox. All of this stuff that was supposed to bring us happiness and fulfillment has only screwed up our lives. Not because this stuff is bad, but because you and I have prioritized it over God in our lives, asking it to do things that it can't do. The great theologian Louis C.K. says it this way, kind of a play on C.S. Lewis. I don't know if that's his real name, but he's like the bizarro C.S. Lewis. But he's right about this. He, he makes this observation. Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Amen? We live in the most amazing time ever and everybody's just mad. It's just fascinating to watch this. One author about 10 years ago described it this way. He said, human beings have three essential needs in their life they have physical needs relational needs and then something he calls a crucial need so physical needs are real easy to meet we meet physical needs with food and clothing and housing and a car, and a cell phone. Those are the five big categories of physical needs, okay? We all have to have those things, okay? So you meet the physical needs with those things. Then there's relational needs. All of us need to be in community. We need horizontal relationships. We need friends. We need family. We need romance. We need, we need those things in our life as well, and we meet those through relationships. But the crucial need is our need for God. It's Pascal's God-shaped vacuum in our souls. And since it's a God-shaped vacuum, only God can fill it. And the problem comes when you and I try to fill that crucial need that we have for God with physical or relational things. That's when we get into trouble. And so Paul comes along and says, in the midst of this tribulation, we are to patiently endure. And all of life is going to be about this. And you'll also notice in Scripture... If you read through, especially the New Testament, that this tribulation or these troubles, this phlipsis the compression that we experience comes in two major varieties. Number one, it comes just because we live in a fallen world. So that's Jesus saying, in this world, you're going to have trouble. We just live in this, in this fallen world. But the second way that this, this uh, tribulation and, this, and these challenges come uh, are for the Christ-follower you will have challenges over and above the regular worldly challenges because you're in Christ, because you proclaim Jesus as your Savior, and the world doesn't like that message, and so we're going to be singled out for special tribulation. And Paul says both of those tribulations, the challenges of the world and the challenges of being a Christ follower, we are to patiently endure. There's a great story in the book of Acts, which is a New Testament book, Uh, Luke wrote the gospel of, of Luke and then he just kept on writing he ended up writing also the book of Acts which is the story of the early church and early on all these guys Peter and John and the rest of the apostles they're going around preaching the good news of Jesus Christ you're a sinner Christ died for your sins he rose again from from the grave to give you eternal life and you need to place your faith and trust in him they're they're preaching this message. Well, the the religious powers at the time, they didn't like this message. It was messing with their power structure. And so you had this Jewish ruling council. So the Sadducees primarily, some Pharisees, some lawyers, some scribes, they're getting very angry at the apostles preaching this message. And so Acts chapter 4 and 5 primarily are about them going after... The apostles, as they're preaching, they keep throwing them in jail, beating them, telling them not to proclaim Jesus, and then letting them go, and then they go out and proclaim Jesus some more. So then they go and put them in jail again, beat them, and do all this terrible stuff to them. And it's just this cycle. And finally, towards the end of chapter 5, they go and they collect these guys again from Solomon's portico. They've been preaching there, and they throw them in jail And then an angel of the Lord comes in the middle of the night to where these guys are in jail and lets them out of jail without the guards seeing it. So now the cells are empty, and where do you think they went? They went right back to the temple and started preaching Jesus again. And so the next morning, the ruling council comes to the guards, and they say, okay, we're here for the the prisoners, and the guards go to get the prisoners. And they come back, and they say, "Uh, they're not here, and we have no idea how they got out because everything's still locked up. And at that moment, somebody comes running up to the ruling council and says, hey, you know those guys that you threw in jail last night? They're back over at Solomon's Portico. They're preaching Jesus again. And so the ruling council goes out there. They gather the guys again. They extract them from this situation. They bring them back to the prison, and then they begin to question them. And they say, why do you insist on preaching in this name, this name of Jesus, and why do you insist on telling everybody that his blood is on our hands? And Peter says, because we're going to listen to God and not man, we're going to go ahead and keep preaching Jesus, and we're going to keep telling them the truth, that, you, the, that his blood is on your hands, that you did kill him. Well, that only enraged the council further. And so now they're really mad, and they're trying to figure out what to do. Are we going to kill them or just beat them within an inch of their life? What are we going to do? So along comes Gamaliel, and he's going to try to inject a little bit of wisdom into the situation. He says, get those apostle guys out of here for a minute. I want to talk behind their back without them here. So they get them out of there, and then he turns to the ruling council, and he says, listen, guys, you need to understand that you shouldn't go after these guys, these apostle guys, and here's why. Remember when Thutis started rebelling against us, and then he died, and all of his followers scattered and went away? And then after him came this guy Judas, not the same Judas that betrayed Jesus, a different Judas. After him came Judas and and he rose up and he had some followers and then he died and all of his followers scattered. He said, you need to understand what these guys, Peter and James and, and, and John, what these guys are doing, if it's not of God, it's gonna die out of its own accord and you won't have to do anything. But, If it is of God, if God is in the middle of this, if this is all true, then it's going to happen whether you try to stop it or not, and you will find yourself opposing God in the midst of that. You can't win by opposing these guys, he told the council. And the council said, okay, that sounds reasonable. So they called the apostles back in. They beat them again, said, don't preach in the name of Jesus. Quit doing this. And then they let them go. What do you think they did? They went right out and started preaching in the name of Jesus again. They would not be detoured. They would not stop. And in the midst of that, after they got out that last time, after they suffered yet another beating, there's a line that says that they rejoiced. That same word we find in in chapter 12. They rejoiced because they were counted as worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We need to understand that this tribulation is inevitable, and even as it comes, we rejoice not because we like the circumstances, but because Christ is in us. His Holy Spirit is filling us. And so Paul says, by his power, patiently endure. And so we have this hope, and we also are called to patiently endure, which means, number three, we really need to be praying. Paul says that we need to be constant in prayer, praying constantly. In another book, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says that we need to pray without ceasing. I, I, I just, I, I, how do you do that when you're driving? Aren't you supposed to close your eyes and bow your head? Probably not a safe thing. How do you do that when you eat? I don't understand. How do you pray without ceasing? Well, what Paul is really saying here is you need to let prayer be a dominant mannerism in your life. Prayer needs to be a way of life. It needs to be something that you naturally default to, like on your computer. It's just the default in your life. It's where you go whenever you're thinking about anything. You first take it to God. And that word constantly that's, that's translated constantly, it's an interesting Greek word. It carries this picture. If you're in the military and a buddy of yours gets shot and he's injured, he's not dead, the idea of being constantly constantly is that you are going to stay with that buddy of yours no matter what. No matter what happens around you, no matter who comes, no matter how bad the situation gets, you are going to, be re- you are going to remain his constant companion. That's the picture. Here, here's a 21st century picture. How many of you have ever left the house without this? And you get to work or wherever it is, and you realize, I don't have my phone! That's a direct quote from me, okay, when that's happened, okay? This is our constant companion, amen? Okay, this is what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is supposed to be our constant companion. Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christ follower who is living life in a world that is betraying you because of the nature of humanity. We have to pray. We have to be connected to the only pure and holy source that there is. It's God. William Barclay says it like this. No relation to Charles. This is William Barclay, the Bible scholar. He says it like this. No man should be surprised when life collapses if he insists on living it alone. No man or woman should ever be surprised when life collapses if you insist on living it under your own power. There's no way that we can be rejoicing in hope and enduring in tribulation if prayer isn't a constant companion. There's no way that we can live a life without prayer because it means living a life without God. And I wanted to find that word collapse. A lot of people look at that word collapse and they think, so that means that if we constantly pray, all of our circumstances around us will never collapse and everything will be fine, right? No! He's talking about you won't collapse. You won't collapse emotionally. You won't collapse spiritually. You ever met that per Christ follower? Just their life is just going downhill in every which way, and for some reason, they just still have this hope of Christ. They're, they're still calm in the midst of that storm. That's what he means by collapse. He means everything can come collapse around you, but you won't collapse because you have the power of God with you. And I'm sure you see how all these these three things have to be related and why Paul groups them together in this verse. If we're rejoicing in hope, it's going to help us to endure and it's going to lead us to pray. And if we're enduring patiently in our tribulation, it's because we live a life rejoicing in the hope of Christ and constantly praying. And if we're constantly praying, it's going to help us to rejoice and to endure. These three things are inextricably linked. And so I want to close with, a couple of quick questions that I think are good questions. Here's the first one. How are then these three things manifestations of genuine love that Paul says in in verse 9? Well, we have to understand that if you're a person who's rejoicing in the hope of Christ, patiently enduring the trials and tribulations of life, and constantly praying, you are a person who is living your life focused not on yourself, but on everyone else and God. That is a a basic characteristic of living a life that's rejoicing in hope, uh, enduring under pressure, and constantly praying. And that's the same thing that genuine love is. Genuine, biblical, Christ-like love is love that is other-oriented. It's oriented on other people, and it's oriented on God, not on the self. Genuine love, therefore, is humble. Genuine love starts from a position of humility, Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else more important than you. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others and have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, a mind that was submitted to the other, a mind that was submitted to something greater than self. So even in the midst of our troubles, we are praying and rejoicing and looking how we can still love and still serve others. And remember, love is patient. Love is constantly praying for others. And love bears the challenges of all relationships. And if you're looking for an example, Jesus shows us the the example of this genuine love over and over and over Jesus abhorred what was evil. He held fast to what was good. Jesus showed honor. I said a couple weeks ago, there's never been a greater act in the history of the world of somebody showing honor to others than Jesus going to the cross on our behalf. Jesus was zealous and he was fervent. I said last week, if you asked Jesus why he went to the cross, he would say two things, because I love you and because I had to. He was diligent and he was passionate, but Both. And he lived a life that rejoiced and endured and prayed. That was his life. And what's really funny is is those things, the rejoicing, the enduring, and the praying, and 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 the loving, those things just got taken up a notch on his way to the cross. On his way to our redemption, those things got even bigger in his life. On his way to the great transaction where he traded his righteousness for our sin, and we became righteous in him. Death is at the center of love. We need to understand that. Death is at the center of love. That's what genuine love is. And when we rejoice in hope, we recognize that it is the death of Christ and the resurrection that that we're rejoicing in. And when we patiently endure, we recognize that, that Jesus patiently endured something greater, far greater than you and I will ever have to go through. And that when we pray constantly, we're dying to our own wisdom and our own counsel. And we're coming alive to God's counsel in our lives. Death is at the center of love. And lastly, I know some of you would say, rightly. Okay, so Jesus was a good example, but how does he empower us to do this? Well, there's a number of places we could go. But since I only have two minutes left, I'm going to go to one place. And this is where you can get started. And you can talk about this in your RCs as a good discussion question moving forward. But how does Jesus empower us? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The author writes this. Therefore, since you and I are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely to us, And let us run with endurance. There's that word, hoopamene. Let us run with hoopamene, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. We run this race because we look to Jesus, who has already done this, because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, and then listen to this, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He not only endured the cross, but he did it, filled with joy because he knew that in that moment he was reconciling you and me to him and giving us a new life. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as Christians, because this has happened, Because Jesus takes the power that he had in going to the cross and gives it to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can live rejoicing in hope. We can live patiently enduring. We can live praying constantly. We can live lives that are not easily distracted because our focus is on Jesus. We can live lives where we're not easily made anxious because our hope is in the cross. We are not cowering in a spirit of fear, but we are digging in with steadfast perseverance. That's how we can live. God we uh, we just ask you to make this